Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. My name is Daniel James and welcome to episode 000076 of The Mission. Broadcasting to you once again from Radio City Docklands. And as we all know by now, Radio City Docklands is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, Now, look, um, we've got a really great show coming up for you uh, this evening. Um, As I was speaking to you, if you were listening last week, the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, was on his feet delivering probably the most anticipated post-war budget that there has been going since the war. (laughs) There was a chance um, for him not to only reset the economy, but, but to also reset what we value in society to move past the tiresome ideologue-driven politics that drives fiscal policy in this country in modern times. So what do we get? Well, basically just more of the same. Uh, Despite raking up a trillion-dollar debt, the government is going to largely leave it up to the private sector to see it's an our way out of this steep recession based on a series of somewhat heroic assumptions, the most Herculean of all being the assumption that we'll have a vaccine for COVID by the end of next year. So just to make sure there's a bit of a timeline along that, that means a vaccine breakthrough in the first half of the year and then the logistics and capacity to to distribute that vaccine to every Australian by the end of the year. I mean, I like to consider myself uh, an optimist, and I I think I am, but gee whiz, a lot of things have to go right for, um, for that to happen. But that's what we've predicated our whole budget on our whole recovery on. So in my humble opinion, there are also a number of uh, missed opportunities in the budget. The main one I reckon was the lack of investment in public housing. At a time when investment in roofs overheads is going to be needed more than now than ever because the economic lag from this thing is going to last years. There's going to be a shortage of jobs. Those jobs are going to continue to be insecure. There simply won't be enough money flowing through the economy. And as for the full expensing of capital assets purchased after the budget night and that are used and installed by June 2022, um, you know, that offset is fantastic on paper, but where's the money coming from to actually buy these assets in the first place? I mean, that's a question that I don't think has been asked enough. So it seems to me that the government wants to push as much of the debt required to climb out of this hole onto households and small businesses which is not so bad when money is basically free, which it is at the at the moment. But, of course, that's not going to always be the case, and there's no plan to decasualise the workforce, which has led to some of the, the larger um, outbreaks during this whole COVID-19 pandemic. And so with the easing of uh, lending laws for consumers, it doesn't really set the economy up in my humble opinion, it's a very humble opinion, in a rigid or flexible way to deal with whatever comes next, i.e. climate change. So what was in the budget for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities? Well, the, the government set aside $46.5 million over four years 
support the capacity building in Aboriginal community-controlled organisations to meet targets set out in the new Closing the Gap Agreement. And that's been broadly welcomed. Uh, the National Aboriginal Community-Controlled Health Organisation has, has welcomed that investment. Um, but, but there's been questions asked about another line item in the budget, and that is the $39.8 million directed towards the Clontar Foundation that supports education for Aboriginal boys through sports incentives. Uh, the budget has received a lot of criticism for being uh, gender biased, not enough being in it for, uh, for women who have been most affected by this pandemic. Um, so first of all, it's a huge sum of money to direct one organisation when you compare it to the $46.5 million provided over four years to a sector that constitutes 143 organisations across the country, and I'm talking about the Aboriginal community-controlled health sector. So $46.5 million for 143 organisations and $39.8 million for one, for half the population. So secondly, you know, zero bucks for Aboriginal girls along the same lines. There are um, There is a STARS Foundation that supports education for Aboriginal girls. They receive ZIP. So later in the show, we'll have a yarn with Lee Shepherd, the um, PhD candidate from the University of uh, Queensland. Lee's doing a PhD on sport for development programs, so she'll give us her take on this. But uh, very shortly, I'll be joined on the phone by uh, Jeffa Greenway, Walwen and Kilmeroy man, and a much-renowned architect. And we'll yarn about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and how they're, uh, they are actually an important impetus to building relationality with Indigenous knowledge keepers to explore culturally responsive design practices and to embed self-determination for Indigenous peoples. There's opportunities everywhere if you think about things luxury. So that's what we'll have a chat to Jeffrey about. The best way to get in contact with me, of course, is via my Twitter handle at MrDTJames. This is The Mission on 102.7 Triple R FM. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Now, to uh, tonight's uh, first guest. Now, you may remember um, I had a conversation with uh, Corey Tutt last week, the founder of Deadly Science, an organisation that aims to help Aboriginal kids find a pathway to STEM-based careers, surprisingly part of the uh, workforce where Aboriginal people haven't tr traditionally thrived, um, basically through a lack of opportunity. So it also comes as a surprise to say the same thing about the world of design and architecture as evidenced by our next guest. Uh, he left behind a childhood ambition to enter politics, very wise decision. Um, Jeff Greenaway discovered a love for design and architecture in his 20s after obtaining a diploma in architectural drafting at La Trobe. Jeff studied architecture at Melbourne University and went on to be the first Indigenous architect to be registered in Victoria. He's a whaleman Camilleroy man. He's a lecturer in architecture and knowledge broker, Indigenous curriculum development at the University of Melbourne. And he has penned an article in Pursuit, which reflects on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and how an Indigenous lens to one of those goals, namely goal number 11, which we'll talk about shortly, can add value and lead to a more just world. He's on the line now. Jeff, welcome to the mission. Thanks for having me. No sweat. Uh, first of all, uh, the, the question I ask of all fellow Melbournians that are that uh, come on the show is how are you holding up uh, in the age of COVID? 
Yeah, well, I'm, I'm still vertical, so that's always a good start. <laughs> so that's the architect coming out. Uh, the kids are climbing up. The, yeah, that's right. The, the kids are climbing up the walls, and uh, c- certainly, uh, I guess we're, we're doing as well as can be expected. Oh, good on you. Uh, before we get into to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and um, the, the piece you wrote um, for, for Pursuit, I thought I'd just uh, do a ask a very broad question. So you you found your way into architecture in in your twenties. What what drove you into architecture in the first place? Because it's not an obvious thing for for blackfellas to to do, even though it is obvious. If you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, it's not seen as necessarily uh, having a strong cultural dimension, but it, it does, in fact, uh, have that. But I guess it started really from that ability to draw and that sort of immediacy of mind to hand, and and the it's a it's a form of cultural expression. It, it's it's really yeah. a, a way of communicating through drawing, and what it also involves is understanding of how things come together and construction, and and then. The, the interesting overlay is how we start to connect to country. So you can see there, there are a number of different domains which would very much align to an Indigenous lens. And um, it also is inextricably linked to politics when you look at all the sort of policy parameters and the planning laws and, and so forth. So nothing is wasted. So while I might have um, studied in politics and, and done other things prior to getting into architecture, it is all actually inextricably linked. Yeah, I think people um, underestimate the significance of uh, the constructed environment on so many other issues. Um, uh, one of the things that you described in, in, in the piece in, in Pursuit is a concept called uh, design justice. I think that might be a good way of getting us into the conversation around um, the UN Sustainable Development Goal. So w- what is what is design justice? Well, it's really a way of framing how we can facilitate inclusive design. And ultimately, you know, as it comes back to aspiring Indigenous architects, you can't aspire to that which you don't see. So if we actually have a role and a contribution and a meaningful voice in shaping the places and spaces in which we inhabit, then we can start to also talk to our history. And so in many respects, what's happened is we've kind of um, erased any sense of an Indigenous place. And you know, a large part of what I do is actually making the invisible visible. And what that really enables us to do is start to say, well, we actually have a real meaningful contribution to make in this space. There's a lot of wisdom in you know, 67,000 years of history. So how do we start to, you know, pivot towards an opportunity where we can build what I call design equity, which is really, you know, understanding our role, our contribution and visibility within um, everywhere we are. So if we take the starting premise that all projects which are built in Australia are built on Indigenous lands, Mm. then there's a role to play to really foreground and and tell our stories through, um, you know, whether it's architecture, interior design, urban design, landscape design, it really becomes a way where we can actually strengthen culture and share and celebrate culture as well. Yeah, and and one of of the things that you... you that I've listened to you. I've listened to you um, conduct other interviews with um, uh, lesser radio stations. Um, one of the things that um, that you like to highlight is that, you know, once we once we start building stuff on Aboriginal land, then everything then must become interconnected, yeah? 
Yeah, 100%. So I think the problem too often is we sort of segment things and we think of it in a sort of silo-based approach. And we know through an Indigenous lens that everything is interconnected. And so if you look at the cycles of the seasons, if you look at you know the sort of flows and the rhythms of life, the moment you sort of take one element out, it starts to disrupt and interrupt those natural flows. And so understanding that comes a real centering way to um, develop those integrated responses, particularly through design action. And, you know, importantly, you know, we're up against a lot of challenges. And so certainly if we start to find that balance and start to learn from the mistakes of the past, we can't do things you know, the way we've always done them um, because they've proven to be unsustainable, they've proven to be problematic. So ultimately, I think we can start to build upon that deep wisdom of traditional custodians and knowledge keepers to start to inform how we engage to create those sustainable cities that we you know, so desperately need. And naturally, in a COVID environment, we can see how important our public spaces are, how mm. important the design of our homes are, how important the, the city's work and the infrastructure and the transport and all those mechanisms which make a thriving metropolis work. And you know, across the, the entire country, whether you're in a, a small town, a regional centre or a major metropolis, you know, all these are, are key considerations in, in terms of reframing the, the opportunity to really embed you know, Indigenous design thinking in, in all that we do. And it's particularly important in a, in a place like um, Australia where, you know, approximately 70% of the Indigenous population is actually urbanised. So in major metropolises, right. um, key towns and, and regional centres. And so if you want to think outside the square and you want to think a bit about this closing the gap idea more, more laterally and, um, and, and in a deeper sense, then urban design is a key part of that. Oh, certainly, because, you know, this is looking big picture. So the, the, the policy parameters, the, the sort of frameworks that we set in train in terms of designing and planning for um, our cities and our places become integral. So if you get those building blocks wrong in the first instance and it's not informed by the values and principles of the way in which we seek to live, we're setting ourselves up for failure. So really considering those elements become integral, particularly in terms of how we manage some of those challenges around loss of biodiversity, mm. urban sprawl, unsustainable cities, um, you know, affordable energy, you know, all these considerations come into the mix. And so then we start to develop much more sophisticated responses as well. Yeah, and I think um, the timing the timing of all this is a real opportunity now that, now that you know, in a, in a place like Melbourne in particular where we've all pretty much been confined to quarters and um, have taken more notice of our of our surrounds and, and the constructed environment and, and the urban planning of some of our suburbs and cities is an actual opportunity to, to, to get on top of this thing and, and have a real discussion about it. Um, let's turn to the uh, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which you um, wrote an article about in Pursuit, um, and in particular, Goal 11, which is, of course, to make cities and human settlements inclusive, safe, resilient and sustainable. What can an Indigenous sensibility bring to achieving such a goal? Well, going back to this notion of being inclusive, it, it starts with some of the basics. So, you know, housing security, you know, sharing and building prosperity, understanding the importance of, of 
of reciprocity and mutual benefit, you know, building capacities and resources for the community, which is really the essence of self-determination and Indigenous agency, you know, really thinking about culturally responsive design practices, you know, embedding notions like caring for country principles, which is, is really a sustainable design practice which has been occurring mm. for millennia, and really learning from Indigenous knowledge systems because naturally enough, you know, the ability to adapt and change and live on on this land, which is, you know, it's a harsh continent for over 3,000 generations, demonstrates there's, there's a, not a lot of knowledge there embedded. And so how do we start to harness that knowledge as a way of starting to really incorporate much more sophisticated responses? So you can see it's it's multifaceted. Yeah, it's 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 very very complex, you know. Um, and uh, you know, I think <laughs> I think it helps to actually bring complexity into into addressing um, some of these some of these issues. I'm speaking with Jeff Greenaway, uh, Indigenous architect based here in Melbourne. What, um, if any, programs or, or instigating um, factors are, are being deployed to actually get more uh, Indigenous people into architecture? What's what's being done on that front? Yeah, ter- terrific question. Um, we set up a, a number of years ago, actually it's 10 years this year, um, with my colleague and friend uh, Ruben Berg, uh, a not-for-profit organisation called Indigenous Architecture and Design Victoria, IADV. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially a, a not-for-profit which showcases to particularly Indigenous people the value of design as starting to realise our own aspirations uh, and community aspirations, but also to role model and to mentor young practitioners coming through, provide lateral pathways into universities, but also speak to the profession um, to demonstrate that the value of that those knowledge systems that I spoke about in starting to recalibrate how we think about design. So now we engage from everyone from the, the Institute of Architects, the Institute of Landscape Architects, the Office of the Government Architect, universities and the like, to really sort of showcase, to role model, to, to engage, to talk, to really sort of put it on the sort of public consciousness and, and through conversations, how Indigenous practitioners can actually shape um, the environments and, and really... Um, move beyond the sort of the cliches, the stereotypes, the sort of museumisation of culture or the mm. muralisation of culture that really started to embed it as part of the DNA of our thinking. And so that is, has been a really useful vehicle to start to showcase that. Universities now realise through um, the numbers, which are still fledgling, but it, they're growing. So to give you a bit of a sense, as best as we can determine at the moment, there's probably maybe 75 students in the system across the country um, right. in design schools in, in the built environment. Um, there's certainly a growing cohort of practitioners coming through the system. Um, and there's, you know, there's scholarships, there's, there's all manner of different initiatives underway to really strengthen that. But importantly, what I've noticed, particularly over the past five year, years, is the profession have really seen the benefit in starting to embrace and harness uh, you know, a connection to Indigenous sensibilities in design practice. And they're seeking it out. You know, it's being written into design briefs. Um, there's an appetite. And, you know, particularly in Victoria, quite progressive in its thinking in legislating for treaty conversations, for instance, it mm-hmm. begs that bigger question, what does the built environment need to do to adapt and change new reality on the horizon? So I think it's, it's quite a positive time. I think it's, we're at a sort of key moment. And I think we can start to really contribute meaningfully into this space. 
Well, that's really great to hear because, you know, from, from an outsider's perspective, and I'll take your advice on this, the, the, the world of architecture and design in, in particular seems to be a very male-dominated and a very sort of Anglo-dominated um, uh, uh, profession. And so the fact that they're now beginning to, to open up and actually be open to some of these ideas that you, that you espouse, the great ideas that you espouse, is um, something um, uh, really something that we should celebrate, yeah? Oh, 100%. And I think that the key moment now is we're starting to shift beyond the sort of deficit discourse around Indigenous culture. It really is about sort of celebrating, understanding that there's you know, great capacities. And you, you look at the sort of adaptive fire management practices of cultural burnings and you know, managing cultural flows. And you can see that it's so um, deep and in its understanding around some of these sustainable practices. And it's all emanating from that knowledge and by having active contributors in that space and having key design voices to start to you know, really interrogate the opportunities. And certainly I think you know, the key is building cultural intelligence and that is a, an ongoing you know, piece of work that, that needs to really be sort of prosecuted, particularly in engaging with you know, government and other different instrumentalities to really demonstrate the value proposition and just hit home that you know, we've always been the architects, the engineers, the land managers for, for millennia. Um, it's not new. We, we have the capabilities, the skills, the sophisticated um, examples, um, which we can certainly talk to and showcase as well. Um, but how do we start to do it now in ways which move beyond the superficial to really embed it within the DNA of, it, of the thinking of design proposition? So, you know, I'm pretty optimistic. That's fantastic. One last question that's just popped into my head before uh, before I let you go, Jeffa. If there was a um, a building or a space in the in Melbourne that sort of espouses some of these sensibilities, which which one would you name? And if it could be one of yours. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Um, but which one would you point people to as a, as an example of what we're talking about? Yeah, I think the one comes to mind, which obviously I have an intimacy and understanding of because I, I was involved in the design is the Korea Heritage Trust at Federation Square. Yeah, right. Because what that really seeks to do is to showcase the relationship to country. So you know, while it's a, an interior space, which um, has always as a building, the Arab building turned its back on the river, what we sought to do in that particular proposition was to building a, a river narrative as part of the sort of normative experience of going through that cultural keeping place. And importantly, what it's also doing is it's showcasing the collection that the trust is the custodians of, and it essentially envelops people as they come into it, uh, including the staff who are essentially reminded each and every day of their important contribution and role as protectors of culture by being enveloped by the collection of which they protect. And it becomes a real engaging uh, way to build conversation, build connection, and start to understand that we all share in this heritage and connection. So you know, for me, as, as a proposition and as a design exercise, it was a terrific project to be involved in because it really sort of uh, centred and anchored to that connection to country. It spoke to Birrung or the River of Mist, the, the Arrow River as, as it's better known, and really infused cultural motifs as part of your journey through the building. It really is an amazing space and hopefully once this thing is over that um, people can go back and uh, enjoy that space because it's one of those um, unfortunate 
things about this pandemic is that we can't enjoy such environments as much as we'd like to. But um, Jeff, uh, thank you so much for coming on this evening. Thank you for your expertise and thank you for the the work that you do. It's tremendous. Um, so um, we'll have you back on again some other time. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You're listening to The Mission on Triple R. My name's Daniel. Um, on to tonight's second guest. Let's not mess around. Um, I mentioned at the top of the show that uh, $30 million, $39 million was announced in last week's federal budget to uh, Clontarf, an organisation according to the budget papers, which supports the education, discipline, life skills, self-esteem and employment prospects of young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men. Now, given that the budget has been largely ridiculed for being gender biased and given the relatively large sum of money handed out to one organisation, one non-Aboriginal community-controlled health organisation for boys only, it... uh, Raises a few questions, especially when you consider that uh, $46.5 million was allocated to the entire Aboriginal community-controlled health sector to deal with and build capacity to uh, to close the gaps. So there are questions to be asked, and um, there's no better person really to have a discussion about these sorts of things about than uh, Lee Shepherd, who was a PhD candidate the University of Queensland's Poach Centre for Indigenous Health and School of Human Movement and Nutrition Sciences. Her research is into sports development, um, sports for development, sorry, for, for Aboriginal people. And she's on the line now to have a yarn about this and um, uh, other things, wherever we go with this. Uh, Lee, welcome to the mission. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. Thanks for the intro. No worries. Thanks for thanks for making the time up there uh, in sunny Queensland. Um I thought a good way to actually start our yarn would be to actually talk a little bit about the research that you're doing for your for your PhD. So, give us an overview of your research into um, sports for development for Aboriginal people. What 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 does that pertain exactly? Basically, uh, sports for development programs are a program that's delivered to people uh, to our mob, and it's also a global. Um, sort of entity that it's worldwide as well. So it's basically to, uh, in this instance, close the gap. They align themselves with the government's uh, policy. Mm-hmm. And it's also neoliberally driven, obviously, um, considering the numbers that are being handed out in allocating of funds. Yeah, it's... Um... So basically, um, so basically with my thesis, I what I've done is gone all the way back to the it's very involved, so basically it's going all the way through all the policies, how sport was used with our mob and old peoples back then and how it's being used today. It's very similar. They use a carrot and stick sort of um, method, mm-hmm. uh, which was also used in the old days as well. It's it's a, um, you know, a reward and punishment, you know. So basically it's to, it's, it's to motivate you to... You know, it was used to motivate, you know, our mob to be, you know, um, sorry, I can't even think of the word. Uh, to, um, let me think. You know, to overlook, you know, the everyday conditions. Gotcha, and, you yeah. Know, and have that one happy moment and whatnot, even though they're on missions where they've got, you know, bad food and 
you know, awful living conditions and stuff like that. So, so have these sports for development um, programs? Have they actually, in a way, tried to delegitimise the, um, the the lived experience of um, First Nations people in a way? Well, basically, I wouldn't say that they're um, they uh, actually, you know, help with Aboriginal self determination. They don't. Mm, mm. They're top down programs. Um, they're programs. They're interventions into our lives. They're just another intervention to you know uh, to so that the agenda and the aims of the government are met. You know, get more of our mob into work, but that what they're overlooking are the causalities of all the disadvantage of what's created the problem. And they've just thrown sport in there because apparently that's high on the Australian, you know, values and culture. Yeah. And they've used it since they've, you know, for, for generations. And so, therefore, you penned a um, co-authored a piece for um, for NITV called "Budget Allocation to Clontarf Foundation Undermines Indigenous Self Determination." You co-authored that with Lee Shepherd, John Willison, uh, Stephen Ryan. Um, in that, you argue that um, uh, well, I'll let you argue it. So, let's start at the very beginning. What is what is Clontarf, and what do they do? Okay, Clontarf is an organisation that was started uh, in West Australia back in 2000, I think. Mm -hmm. They're a non-Indigenous organisation. Jared Nishad is an ex-AFL player. Yep. Um, So basically it started there. It started small, um, but the funding's been rolling in. Like, this is massive. I'm talking about massive amounts of funding they're getting at the moment. So basically they target our young males. I think they started off in high schools and then realised that some of the, you know, some of our young mob that get to high school are already, you know, starting to disengage. And so they've actually started up in some primary schools as well uh, to work with the young people. But, you know, working in the, you know, going to visiting communities, talking to, you know, community peoples and talking to, you know, organisations whose clients are those who are, you know, have, have fallen through the cracks. Yep. You sort of get the impression that, you know, for most of our mob, they don't really think about it. Yep. You know, um, I've spoken to people and they're like, oh, it's great, you know, uh, you know, it's a great program, it's great for my kids. But when you really sit down and think about it and you think about what organisations are saying and what they're saying, look, you know, um, we're really happy that this program started in our community. However, they refused to link with us mm-hmm. and they couldn't understand why because their clients were the ones that, are, you know, who Quantaf purportedly, tar- you know, target. So when you sit down and think about it and then looking at, you know, from conversation, you know, yarns I've had with people all over the place, I came to the conclusion that basically the program itself, even though it says it targets at, you know, what they call at risk, um, is a very paternalistic way of saying, you know, all our young followers are at risk yep. and that's not the case. Um, it's also... is not targeting those at risk. It will go, like I think if you read the article, they will go into a school, they will enrol all the all the um, male students in, in the school into their program. And then it's basically, you know, that, that includes 
you know, ones that don't need it. Yep. Um, who are A grade students, uh, but it's I think it's a numbers game with them. And also, too, those students are going to help them achieve their goals, which is, you know, get more funding. The, the Whereas article... with those who are at risk... Yeah, sorry. No, no, sorry. Go on. Please continue. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, well, those who are at risk are the ones who fall... Because, you know, they, they're, they're coming into here. There's a lot of, you know, stuff that they're dealing with on a daily basis. You know, there could be health problems. There could be undiagnosed you know, health problems that are affecting their learning. You know, there's you know problems happening in their family lives. You know, whatever that are really you know impacting how they can how that you know they're coping how to how they're able to cope. So you know, these are the ones that you know that they'll get a few chances. But you know, like I think the article said, no matter no matter footy training is going to you know lead them towards a happy life. You actually go as far as just be kicked out of the program. Yeah, you actually go as far as um, mm-hmm. to say in the um, in the article that um, what Contaf is actually doing is um, using an assimilationist model um, to to, to yep. nationally develop these kids to become meaningful participants of society and contributing yep. to the to the Commonwealth. Yeah, yeah, that's basically it's a neoliberally driven program. And so we have a federal government that loves to um, announce things, and so it likes to announce buckets of monies, buckets of money, and, and, and tag them alongside um, particular organisations or, or movements to actually say, you know, basically, there we're doing something. I told you so. Um, have we worked out what the bottom of the motivation is for the government to pour so much money into one single organisation? Uh, with this particular organisation, well, basically, I don't know why they're pouring so much money into it. <laughs> I don't know whether it's behind the scenes or there's connections there. Obviously, they seem to know each other very well yeah. as well, so it could be a mate thing. I don't know. Don't, don't quote me on that one, but I haven't really looked at that. I just know that, that sport is one of the major you know, go-to vehicles of government's um, you know, in in dealing with, you know, their their Aboriginal problem, you know, trying to rather than actually looking at the causal you know, causalities of what's what's creating the problem, they're just going coming from another direction, using another, you know, means of trying to, you know, get us to participate in a society that for many years marginalized and we were we're pretty well, you know, on on the on the fringes and voiceless for many years, so you know. And now that they realise that, you know, well, basically, if you look at our, well, it could be one thing. I think it is it is neoliberal, but I, when you look at the statistics of births, our mob, you know, outstrip uh, white Australia. So there's a lot more of us, and a lot of us are a lot younger. So that's mm. why they're starting to target, um, you know, our young people because they're looking at them as, like I said, to contribute to future Commonwealth. And it's 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 you say in the article as well that it's actually the 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 best supported sport for development program in, in the country. Are we from from the outside? Are we seeing results that sort of back up that level of investment? 
so you see there where where they've uh, looked at the 2019 annual report. Uh, problem is there is a very severe lack of transparency. Like if you looked up Quantar Foundation online, you tried to find any kind of information about them, you'll most likely get Quantar, Quantar, Quantar. Uh, there's only, I think, uh, hard to even locate like reports for government reports, government-sponsored reports. Um, like I said, when I, you know, went and yarned with them and asked them if they wanted to take part in the research, they said no. Um, so, yeah, there's very lack of transparency. So all your – I don't know, you know, whether or not they're doing any good. Um, from, you know, from people I've spoken to whose children are in it, they love it. But um, also, too, I also know that their children don't need it. You know yeah. what I mean? Yep, yep. And when when you actually compare the, the, the amount of transparency and reporting required of Aboriginal community-controlled organisations, for instance, um, to find yeah. that, uh, you know, $39 million has gone to one organisation and doesn't seem to be too much transparency on the way that money is spent and the outcomes achieved as a result of that money... It's yeah. um it's yeah. a little bit grinding for people uh, like you and I, Lee, that have, have been around for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. Money's t- money's been thrown towards you know mental health. That could have went to an Archos. Yeah, you know, organisation. You know, um, stuff like that. It's sort of like you're a edu- You know, you're only there to get get our young ones in, you know, to you're an engagement program, you're not a mental health program. It's yeah. these sorts of things where money is getting spent. And then look like basically even though that's only a small amount of money that I've I put in that article, if you go online you will find this state government has given them this much. This state government's given them that much. They get funded by state all the state governments. They are, you know, Basically, you know, the corporate organisations, they're philanthropic, they get a huge amount of money from a lot of different places. So, you know, they're doing well. I don't think they need $39 million. That could have been spent better, you know, supporting yeah. our, you know, our uh, Aboriginal-controlled health services, which, you know, we, we, always, we always miss out. So, yeah, it is really grinding. Yeah, and it's disappointing. But unsurprising. Because, yeah, know. not surprising. But it's disappointing because the the Aboriginal um, community-controlled sector in particular um, during this pandemic has done such a wonderful job in terms of protecting our people. And they have yeah. a history of you now over 50 years of self-determined excellence, I would, I would say. Yeah. I mean, there's always yeah. um, exceptions to that rule. But, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, to see $39 million go to one organisation and $46.5 million go to 143 organisations means that there are questions that need to be asked and they will continue to be asked. Um, it is 9 to 8 here on uh, the mission on Triple R 102.7 FM. I'm speaking with PhD candidate Lee Shepherd uh, from the Poach Centre at the Indigenous Health and School of Human Movement and Nutrition Sciences at the University of Queensland. Um, one last question before I let you go, Lee. Um, what does uh, yeah. an ideal sports for development program actually look like? Well, basically, I if you want an ideal sports program, it has to come from within the community. It has to come from bottom up. It has to be something that they want. All of these programs, you always look at any intervention into our communities and lives. It's always, you know, 
thrown at us rather than our being able to make the decision for ourselves. This is what's going to work in our community. You know what I mean? These are very holistic sport for development programs. They assume we're all the same. They assume all the communities have the same problems, you know, and they, they have no knowledge that basically we're very diverse. And each community is totally different from the next. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. So basically it should come from within. It should come from us, you know, what what our needs are and what what we want for, and, you know, and the aspirations of the parents in those communities as well. It's It's not like here's a program, take it or leave it, your kids have to stick by our rules and regulations because it's not going to work for a lot of them, a lot of these, you know, our young fellas. No, you need so, you need yeah, Aboriginal a bottom up. Yeah, you need Aboriginal involvement. Yeah, from, and you from need the very more um, input from Aboriginal, you know, peoples and more. Actually, if you look at the Quantaf website, you'll notice that it's mostly white from yeah. the board down. So you know, you need a you need a, a program that's run, through, you know, by black fellas for black fellas. It's a, it's a, it's a, that's a radical notion, Lee. Um, <laughs> all the questions we've spoken about and discussed um, here tonight are legitimate questions. So, um, Lee, thank you so much yeah. for your time. Stay in touch. I'd like to be um, abreast of your research as you as you continue on down the path towards becoming uh, Dr. Lee. Sure. But um, thank you so much for um, <laughs> coming and speaking to us here in uh, sunny Melbourne tonight. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.